12, just a couple verses, verse 35 through 37. If you have a device or Bible, we'll be reading that passage together in just a few minutes. Uh, We are working on actually developing a new website. I'll be excited to tell you more about this in the weeks to come. Uh, We've we've hired some help with doing this. We've got different assignments going on. And so we're going to be developing and launching a new website in the the weeks to come. We'll give you more detail about that. But the only reason I say that now is to tell you that in going over the content, it's pressed me to go back and to think again and go over very clearly why we exist. Why are we here? What are we supposed to all be about uh, as a church? And so while we've thought about this many times over the years, it was time again. Revisit the content. Think about our mission. Think about who we are. Think about why we exist. And so as I'm processing through this, loving God, loving each other, making disciples, are the three like major commandments, the overarching commandments in the scripture to Christians. These are the things that rise to the top. And so I've been meditating on these three things and thinking these are like the big picture ideas. Everything we do is meant to fall under those headings, loving God, loving each other, and making disciples. How are these things going to take place? How are we going to do this? And I don't mean how, like, mechanically, program-wise, how are we going to do it. I mean, functionally, how are we going to be enabled to love God, to love each other, and to make disciples? One of our highest core values as a church is to be gospel-centered, or Christ-centered. And what we mean by that is that we believe and are convinced that everything we can do, everything we should do, is somehow derived out of who Christ is and what he's done for us. We want that to be the source of power and strength and motivation for everything we do. And if ever we find ourselves doing things that did not fall under that heading, then those would be things to stop doing. There's no reason to do that. But we want everything. Every time we gather, every time we sing a song, every time we have a community group meeting, every time we're serving, we want this to all be fueled out of this gospel power, who Christ is and what he's done for us. But what's going on when there's a breakdown? When there's failure in our mission, where we're coming up short, where we're not growing in our mission, it's not actually happening or taking place. Maybe in many ways we could say, we could evaluate our own discipleship and say, well, I don't, I don't worship like I used to. I'm not saying no to things that I know are displeasing to the Lord like I used to. And I find myself saying yes to things that I know are displeasing to the Lord. Finding myself slower to repent. I avoid confession. I find myself holding grudges against others that have offended me. I'm slow to forgive. 
I serve less. I'm finding myself more self-indulgent. I'm giving less. I'm spending more. I'm less passionate about my spiritual life and more passionate about my temporal life. As I'm thinking through in my mind, you know, what is discipleship? What makes a disciple? What's a growing disciple? That paragraph that I was just reading to you, those are some of the things on my mind that I think, well, how could we measure our success as disciples? Those are the categories that I would be thinking of. What's happening when that takes place in our lives? When things like that are happening, when we find our souls drifting like that, I want to propose that in some way, Jesus has become too small in our view. What I'm saying is that when our hearts drift away from the Lord, when our discipleship is faltering or failing, I want to propose that what's at the core of that, what's behind that, what's beneath all that, is that somehow how we see Jesus is less than how he is. Our view of him has in some way diminished. In other words, if we can maintain a high view of Jesus, who he is and what he's done for us, we're finding ourselves in the power, in that enabling grace to grow as a disciple. But from time to time, our view of Jesus becomes too small, too low, too unimportant, less amazing, less glorious, as if somehow Jesus was not wise enough for us to actually listen to or powerful enough for us to put our trust in him or loving enough for us to run to him or maybe not gloriously glorious enough for you and I to lay down our lives for him higher the view of Christ the greater the discipleship the more successful discipleship the more success in loving God the more success in loving one another our text this afternoon is a challenge from Jesus to anyone who thinks too little of Jesus. To anyone who has a view of Jesus that is not high enough. He's in a situation, he's teaching in the temple, and opinions are being formed about Jesus. But Jesus zeroes in to say, they're not high enough. Your view of the Messiah, your view of me, is not high enough, not good enough, not glorious enough, not big enough, not large enough. Because when we see Jesus as he is, he will change your life. Our hearts and our lives get transformed as we see the glory of God in Christ. So the message is not, we're mediocre disciples, we got to do better. We need to beef up here, strengthen here. We need to get on track with our mission. I'm cutting down beneath it all and saying, it all's going to happen as you and I have this high, 
glorious view of Christ. In other words, seeing him as he actually is. Jesus asked the question to make this point. Let's read the passage together. This is Mark chapter 12. I've got 35 through 37. Let me back up just a sentence in the second half of verse 34. After that, no one dared ask him any more questions. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. When we see Jesus as he is, he'll change your life. I want to break down the message, three simple points when the questions stop, when the answer is incomplete, and the life-changing answer. First point, when the questions stop. That was the opening sentence that I read from this passage. No one dared ask him any more questions. Questions are so important, and the book of Mark is really written with a focus on a particular question. We've talked much about this. It's all written for us to know who Jesus is. And the whole book really centers on this, this moment when Jesus is with his disciples and poses this question, who do you say that I am? That's the essence of the book. That's what it was written about, to get to that point, to ask you the question. It's a focus on questions. Now, questions are tools. Questions are tools that affirm something we know, or they are tools to lead us toward knowing something. Questions are very useful tools. This gospel is filled with questions. We've gone over them as we've been studying our way through this gospel. They come from various motives used for different reasons. At times, the disciples were dumbfounded about Jesus and said, who is this who even the wind and the waves obey? I don't get it. They asked the question. Someone came to him who was trying to justify himself, said, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? There were others that challenged Jesus with a question. By what authority do you do these things? Often the intent of some of the questions that came from the religious leaders were designed to trick Jesus into saying something that would allow them to build a case against him. They were trying to entrap him, set him up, goad him into saying something that they could say, aha, now we can prove that he is wrong. Now we can build a case against him. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? If a woman has seven husbands, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? What is the greatest commandment? And that one kind of turned on the guy. He seemed quite satisfied with the answer, and it looked very good. And yet that passage ended with, well, my friend, you're very close to the kingdom, but you're not in. You're close, but you're not in. Here we get to a point where the questions stopped. No one dared ask any more questions. They were either intimidated by Jesus or satisfied with his answers or settled in their opinion. 
This is actually a sad moment when somebody stops asking questions. And we all have found ourselves in situations where it's like maybe you've been in a classroom and you've got some sharp, edgy professor, professor that kind of puts students in their place and you're like, I, I don't dare ask a question. I'm going to be embarrassed if I ask this question. Maybe you're in a context where you think, I know what all these people think already. And my question doesn't fit, so I don't want to ask any more questions. You're sitting in community group, but you don't want to ask the question because you're afraid you already know what everybody's thinking there, and you're thinking something maybe contrary, maybe different. Maybe you're wondering about a different perspective on something, and so you hesitate or you withdraw. To stop asking questions means... We stop moving. We stop learning. Either we feel we've got it already, we've decided to reject something, or we're too uncomfortable with asking more questions. Friends, I would really hope, and I know it isn't always the case, but it certainly would be my aim that in this church and in our community groups, there would be an atmosphere of freedom to ask questions, to ask difficult questions, a real burden for our, our teenagers in particular. Very difficult growing up in society today. Lots of questions. Lots of questions that would be counter to what you might think the church believes. And you might feel, Lord, sheepish or intimidated or not comfortable with posing the questions. Shane Becker's been leading our teens. And recently they went together through a book, 10 Questions Every Teen Should Ask and Answer About Christianity by Rebecca McLaughlin, I was glad that he was doing that to encourage that. Look, it's good to ask questions. And there's a problem when you stop asking questions. These people stopped asking questions of Jesus before they fully knew who Jesus was. And that was a dangerous place to be in. Some of them have made up their minds. The religious leaders in the context here in this temple teaching at this point had made up their minds about Jesus. Now the plot begins to turn and they go off and they begin plotting his demise at this point because they're done asking their questions. They've made up their mind. They're rejecting him. He also had people that were accepting of him, positive towards him, but he realized your view is too small too low. And so they stopped asking questions. So Jesus picks it up. He asked the question. I'm going to just say this as well about questions. And if I could encourage you, if you're sitting here and you find yourself and you can kind of relate to what I'm saying. Say, yeah, I've got some questions, but I'm not really sure I'm comfortable asking questions in this context or in our community group context or with people uh, in this church. I really would hope that you would feel comfortable and welcome to do that. But I also would want to encourage you to ask some questions about Jesus, about who he is. I know there's lots of other questions, but when the questions start going towards Jesus, that's very hopeful because that's who you need to know. That's the direction that you need to go when you have questions. So Jesus poses the question. 
Point number two, the answer that they had was incomplete. Jesus asked the next question because they're not at the truth yet. Ben Franklin said it well, half the truth is often a great lie. Often a great lie because it's close to the truth, meaning it can be quite deceptive. If you have a good view of Jesus but not a great view of Jesus, well, you're going to be right, but you're going to be wrong. And that's where this context was coming out of. Part one of his questions, Jesus says, how can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? He's the son of David. This, this phrase, son of David, has just recently come up in our study through the book of Mark. Blind Bartimaeus hears that Jesus is coming and cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. We have the triumphal entry. We have people referencing the son of David as they're singing his praises, as he's making his kingly entrance into the city of Jerusalem. And Jesus is not denying this. He's not refuting it. He's not disagreeing with it at all. David was a great king. David was a good king. And God made a unique promise to David that it would be his heir, that would be the future promised king to replace him. But the idea that God would send a king like David was only half the truth. Because God was sending more than a king. Okay, give you a quick rundown of some Jewish history about kings. From the very beginning or inception of them as a nation, let's go from the Exodus. So while the calling of Abraham preceded that much, it was really when God delivered them out of Egypt that he was establishing them as a sort of a nation of people. And when he did that, he delivered them, as the scripture says, with a mighty hand. And there was a song that was sung about them being delivered out of Egypt. And it was all in sort of militaristic, victorious words. And it was all attributing it to God. God had, you know, just dispelled their enemies. God had come with a mighty hand and delivered them. Like a, like a mighty king, like a king warrior, God delivered them out of Egypt. God fought for them. God was their king. God gave them Moses as a prophet to lead them, but it was obvious. It was clear, and it went over and over again. Moses would go and talk with God. God would tell Moses what to do, and then Moses would go and lead the people. So while Moses was the prophet leading the people, God was their king. Joshua followed in Moses' footsteps, listening to God at every step of the way, leading the people. Joshua led the people into the promised land. God was their king. We got a long period of judges revealing this ongoing cycle of peace, rebellion, discipline, rescue, and then back to peace over and over again. The people of God walking through this cycle, walking away from God, neglecting God, denying God, falling into discipline, falling into trouble, God rescuing them, and his rescue would come through an appointed judge. Throughout that period, God showed himself a faithful Lord, a faithful king to his people, while the people were not faithful to him. 
the human leaders that God appointed was, oh, just every variety from nice try to that was a disaster. The human leadership always came with some failure. And then we get towards the end of Samuel, the prophet's life. And the people demand a king. And they make this not appeal, this demand to Samuel, Samuel, we want a king because we want to be like all the other nations around us. Now, when God interpreted that and explained to Samuel what was going on, God made it clear they're doing this because they're rejecting me as their king. That's what was going on. We don't want God to be our king. We want you to appoint another king. We want a human king. Mark Bodo wrote a wonderful little book called After God's Own Heart, the gospel according to David. In it, he describes it, says, God's problem with kingship in 1 Samuel is not with the royal office per se, but rather with the Israelites' conception of kingship, especially their intention to switch their reliance and allegiance from a divine to a human king. That's what was going on in their hearts. We want a human king. We don't want the divine king. When, in fact, the plan of God throughout the whole history from the very beginning was like, I am planning to be your God and having you be my people. So while he appointed leaders, the main thrust was always that God himself was the king. So a king can be a good thing, but God's plan and intention was just that, that he himself would fulfill that role. Then the question that Jesus asked focused on a phrase from Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord. David said that. And here we have Jesus affirming the inspiration of Scripture So don't argue with me about whether it was David. Don't argue whether he was in his right mind. Look, he said this by the Holy Spirit. God spoke this, and he said, The Lord said to my Lord, which poses the riddle, the question. How can the Messiah be David's son and David's Lord? If he's his son, how could he be his Lord? If he's his son, he's inferior, he's subsequent, he's beneath. How is it possible that David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, could call his son his Lord? The answer The implication is clear to us because the Messiah is more than the son of David. He's also God himself coming to save. The Messiah is the son of David. And the Messiah is the son of God. A Messiah that is only the son of David is incomplete. It's not high enough. It's not big enough. It's not who he is. Your view 
of the Messiah is too small. Your answer to the question is incomplete. Can I ask you a personal question? What is it that you want from Jesus? What are you hoping to get from Jesus? You're here, you're at a Christian church, you're just your presence, you're giving some affirmation about looking to Jesus to some extent, whatever state or place your heart might be. Could I just ask you, what, what is it that you're hoping to get from Jesus? What are you expecting from him? Jesus is the son of David. It's a wonderful gift, wonderful blessing. David was a great king. Jesus is a great king. Good kings do great things for their people. Life is good when you have a good king. Kings defeat enemies. Kings create prosperous economies. Kings think about the best interest of their people to create a peaceful, well-established, well-fed, enjoyable life. A good king is a good deal. A good king is a real blessing. So to say to Jesus, you're the son of David, that's a good thing. I want all those things from Jesus. But Jesus is saying, that's not enough. There's more. Because I am more. I just ask you, do, do you want a king to fix your life? Is that what you're doing here? I'm here because I'm looking for a king that will fix my life. I've got problems. I need more of this. I need a little less of that. I need some things rearranged in my life. I would like some different circumstances. I would like a better this, a little bit less trouble. What is it that you want from this king, from this son of David? Are we looking to someone to change our world? Well, he certainly does that. But the point of the passage is Jesus is saying, that's not high enough. There's more. I want you to want something more. I want to do something more. I didn't just come to change your world. I came to change you. I came to change you from the inside. I think sometimes we come to Jesus and says, Jesus, I want you to change everything around me. I want a king. I want a son of David that will change my world and fix my world. And Jesus says, I'm more than a son of David. I'm the son of God. And I'm coming not only to change your world, but actually, I'm coming to change you. I'm coming to change your heart. I'm coming to transform you from the inside out. Third point, the life-changing answer. Jesus poses the question. It does come across as a bit of a riddle, and he leaves it unanswered. He avoids saying out loud, even though... We could all deduce clearly what's being implied. He's trying to communicate that he's the son of God. The Messiah is more than the son of David. That's how David could call his son his Lord. Because the Messiah is God. 
he poses the question. He leaves the question hanging. He doesn't state the answer because questions are tools to lead us towards knowing something. By leaving it unspoken, Jesus made room for the hearers to realize the truth for themselves. You know this. It's one thing to be told the answer. It's another thing to be given a question and have you discover for yourself the answer. And this is the design of Christ in your life. This is the design of the book of Mark, the center of it. Hey, who does everybody else say that I am? Jesus asked his disciples. Well, some say this, some say that. Okay, fine. But here's the real question. Who do you say? What do you think? That's what's going on here. Let the scriptures pierce into your soul. That's the question. What is your view of Jesus high enough? A disciple is not someone who can recite all the answers. A disciple is not necessarily someone who can recite the correct theological and Christological answers about who Jesus is. A true disciple is someone who is convinced in their hearts about who Jesus is, and they are compelled to follow him at any cost. He's made a true believer out of you. You didn't just learn an answer. You didn't study the catechism and be able to quote it from memory so that you give the correct answer all well and good, not necessarily a disciple. So Jesus leaves the riddle unanswered so that it lands in your soul, swirls around inside your hearts and your thinking and presses you to grasp the answer. Another reason was that Jesus was just on the verge of proving who he was. Sometimes just saying something that is true can be premature and less convincing than actually proving it in real life. And that's where Jesus was at. He was getting nearer and nearer to the cross. An example of this would be, you remember the story of John the Baptist when he was in prison. He was discouraged. He was doubting. He sent his disciples, go ask Jesus, are you the one or should we look for another? Now, Jesus could have said, tell him, yeah, I'm the one. But he didn't. He said, go back and tell John. Tell him what you see. Tell him what you hear. Tell him that you see blind people seeing and deaf people hearing and lame people walking and dead people raised to life and poor people having good news preached to them. Go tell John all what you see taking place. And then John will have his answer. Jesus was getting close to the cross. And it was at the cross where this profound truth was displayed out loud. In other words, he poses the riddle, lets it settle, lets it simmer, and within days, the evidence, the full evidence of the answer to the riddle is going to become visible to the entire world. 
you could really say that the climax of the book of Mark takes place at Jesus' death on the cross when the Roman centurion is standing right there observing it all, watches Jesus breathe his last, and then makes this glorious, profound statement, surely this man was the Son of God. That's the answer to the question that Mark put at the center for all of us to answer. And at the conclusion of the book, we see someone who came to terms with it himself, who saw the evidence and realized and believed in his heart, I can't deny it anymore. Look at what just took place. Surely, this man is the son of God. We're witnessing precisely what the Lord had intended to take place in your life and in my life through the reading of the gospel according to Mark. To get to the end so that you and I would say, like the centurion, surely. All the evidence is in now. I can't deny it. He's proven himself ten times over. There's no denying it. He is the Son of God. the moment of our text in chapter 12 in this teaching series in the temple here, the final convincing evidence that Jesus was the Son of God had yet to take place. The scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees at this point stopped asking questions because in their minds, the verdict was in. They had made up their minds to condemn him. He's not the Son of God. He's not the Messiah. He's not the King of the Jews. But when Jesus went to the cross, all the evidence was in. When he laid down his life, took our sins upon himself, sacrificed himself to make us free, to make us right with God, there it was. The evidence was in. It's what we celebrated at the table today. He did it. He did the one final complete act proving who he is. So let's close. What, what happens when we see that Jesus is the son of God? First, when we see him as the son of David, again, lots to be grateful for. Lots to desire, lots to ask for, lots to appreciate and rejoice over and enjoy. Jesus is the son of David. We should vote for him. He's the man. He's the guy. We want him in office because he changes the world that we live in. But if he's both the son of David and the son of God, now we have someone who came to change us, us, you, me, in my heart, from the inside. New desires, new loves, new motivations. How does this change us? At the cross, when he laid down his life, 
was the moment where the power came to change us from being enemies to being friends. We were at enmity with God. Jesus breaks down that enmity in order that we can be friends with God. Because of Christ's sacrifice, he changes us from merely wanting things, give me a king, give me the son of David, merely wanting things from towards actually wanting him. I don't just want what the king can do for me. I want him. I want the person of Jesus. He changes us from being inquirers to worshipers. Keep inquiring, keep asking questions, but he's leading. And when you stop asking questions, listen to the questions that Jesus is asking because he doesn't want you to stop asking because he doesn't want you to stop moving forward. And so he starts pulling and starts asking you questions because he wants to get you and me to that point where we're being transformed from asking questions to becoming worshipers. He wants to change us from being consumers to being faithful soldiers. He wants to transform us from merely being consumers of good things from a good king to actually being part of his family, part of his army, living for his glory, living for his service. Friends, I have the worship team come on up. If we are, and we are, called to love God, to love others, and to make disciples, how is this going to come about in this church? How are we going to accomplish this mission? How is it actually going to be successful? The key rests on knowing Jesus for who he is. A too low view, too small view of Jesus, we will not accomplish our mission. We will not be able to do what God's called us to do. We will not be what God has called us to be. But the more you and I keep our view on Jesus and see him as high as he is for who he is, the more you and I encourage each other to keep Jesus in that place. He's more than the son of David. He's the son of God. Can you imagine? Do you imagine yourself encountering the Son of God in person? That changes us. Let's stand. Father, thank you for revealing yourself to us in Christ, who is the perfect image, perfect representation who you are. Lord, I pray for us as a congregation that our view of you would never diminish, never decrease, but only increase, only grow stronger. That our view of you would only go higher the more we know you. I want to pray for the friends in this room that have too small a view of who you are. And ask that you'd use us as a community to help them see the truth about who you are.
how could the Messiah be David's son and his Lord? Because it's you. You are the Lord. You are God come in the flesh to be with us and to give yourself for us. Let that change us thoroughly from the inside out in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.